Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. I'm Susan Murray, and I'm the publisher with Sydney University Press, so I'm the host for this evening. Before we start proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners on the land upon which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral grounds that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in Aboriginal custodianship of country. We have a great lineup of speakers this evening, so I won't take up too much of your time. I've been the publisher with Sydney University Press for over 10 years, and during that time, I've overseen the publication of books on subjects as diverse as the future of democracy, the ethics of prostate cancer screening, uh, and the history of cane toads and invasive species. But there's a special place in my heart for the books on Australian literature that help us understand our stories and our writers better. And academic books these days are a labour of love. When you talk to many researchers, you can tell that they love what they do and they're excited to be able to share what they've learnt and their insights with the wider world. And there's an awful lot of labour that goes into making academic books the best that they can be. But digital technologies and distributions have levelled the playing field for smaller publishers, such as us. These essays on Elizabeth Harrower's writing will be available from next week in the US, the UK, Japan and Europe, and the rest of the world via our distribution partners. And we don't even have to ship dead wood around the globe. We know that the books that get printed and sent to our customers and our readers in those places will be to the same standards from the same files that, that we use here, whether they're printed in South Carolina or Milton Keynes. And not only that, but the ebook editions can be accessed via your iPad or your Google device um, or via the libraries through JSTOR and ProQuest. Um, and we do have a preview of the ebook edition if you want to see that, and that'll be ready hopefully tomorrow. Um, but so that's sort of where publishing is, is going in this space, but it's really exciting that we're now up to our sixth book in this series, and I'll now invite Professor Robert Dixon, the series editor, to say a few words. Thank you very much, Susan, and welcome, welcome everyone, and a special welcome to Elizabeth Harrower. It's great to have you here, Elizabeth. Welcome. Well, I'm just going to speak very briefly about the series itself. Um, it began, I suppose, with a sense of absence. Um, Geordie Williamson, the, when he was working for The Australian as the chief book reviewer, used to wind me up every time we met and he'd say, why don't you academics ever do anything for the creative writers? And I used to say to him, well, we do, don't we? And it started me to think about the kinds of books and book series that we had in, in press. And 
it didn't take me long to realise that a lot of the book series about Australian literature actually belonged to the past and the distant past at that. Many of you will remember that Oxford University Press published a very nice little series on Australian authors in the 1960s. And then uh, the University of Queensland Press had a series on Australian authors that ran from about the mid-80s to the mid-90s. It was a very important series, but it wound up in the mid-90s. And then again in the mid-90s, Melbourne University Press um, revived the idea and then it very quickly folded for financial reasons. So what's happened then is that since the mid-90s, which is now a period of some 20 years, we haven't had this kind of dedicated series of books on Australian authors and Australian writing. And in that time, a whole generation or probably two generations of writers have come to the peak of their career without having these kinds of books written about them. And many of the earlier generation of writers are probably due for a new book, and it still hasn't been done. So I entered into discussions with Susan Murray, the publisher at um, SUP, about filling this absence. And uh, we were both very much aware of the tradition of work on Australian literature that's embedded in the Sydney English Department um, uh, for many years, and also the work that Sydney University Press itself used to do in the field of Australian literature back in, uh, uh, from, the, from the 1960s on. And we thought we would uh, try to revive the, those two very strong traditions. So we, we imagined a series of books books and edited books about Australian authors or on key ideas in literary history and literary criticism. They would be well written. They would be attractively designed. They would be in paperback and they would sell at a reasonable price. So the titles we have so far, just to go through them, we began in 2014 with my book on the novels of Alex Miller and we had the template for the series done at that point. Then we had um, Brigitte Olubas's edited collection of essays on Shirley Hazard, which came from a conference that Brigitte convened in New York in 2012, Brigitte, at Columbia University. We have a book on contemporary Australian literature by one of Australian literature's greatest American critics at the moment, Nicholas Burns from New York University. This is a very personal and wide-ranging book on contemporary Australian literature in what Nicholas calls, in the American way, the era of neoliberalism. And this year uh, alone, we've published three titles. Uh, Melbourne academic Lynn McCredden's book on the fiction of Tim Winton. Uh, again, Melbourne University's Ken Gelder and Rachel Weaver on Australian colonial fiction. And tonight's title, Brigitte and uh, Liz McMahon's edited collection of essays on Elizabeth Harrow, which, as I'm sure you'll hear, also came from a conference at UNSW uh, in 2015. And next year, um, We'll be looking. We'll be publishing uh, a new collection of essays on the Booker Prize-winning writer Richard Flanagan. So we've now got seven titles in the series, and we feel that it's come of age. We've had some good reviews in the Times Literary Supplement, um, and in uh, journals like Australian Book Review. And in fact, 
the Australian Book Review said of Lynn McCredden's volume on Tim Winton that the SUP series now takes its place, takes the place once held by UQP as the leading series on Australian literature. So, as I say, we're looking at three titles a year, and next year we have the, uh, the book on Richard Flanagan, a book by David Carter from the University of Queensland on the American publication of Australian writers, and uh, a new book by Fiona Morrison, who's here tonight, on Christina Stead in America. So we're looking very much forward to those three titles. And then after that, beyond that, we have work in progress commissioned on Patrick White and the theatre, on Gail Jones, and on Miles Franklin. Well, tonight's book um, has been a great pleasure. It's a unique situation to where we've all been able to work on the body of work of a, of a writer um, in this way. And the new volume is, of course, well-timed to take its place in what I think we can call the revival of interest in Elizabeth's work that began in 2014 with text's publication of In Certain Circles. And as I'm sure you know, texts have gone on to reprint all of her work, which is now uh, all in print. I took part um, last year in a, in a postgraduate seminar on Elizabeth's work, and I, I was struck by the fact that for our postgraduate students, her work is absolutely fresh and absolutely contemporary and absolutely speaks to uh, contemporary postgraduate students. So I hope that this book will go on to uh, be read widely and also to support uh, the next generation of courses on Elizabeth's work and, and perhaps postgraduate work. So that's the series in which the book is published. I'm going to hand over now to our MC for the next stage of proceedings and that's the acclaimed novelist Michelle de Kretzer. Michelle was uh, also a participant in that 2015 symposium on Elizabeth Harrower's work from which the present book has its genesis. And of course, in 2013, uh, Michelle's novel, Questions of Travel, took both the Miles Franklin Literary Award and the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you. This is a little bit um, of a mise en abime situation because having been the recipient of that introduction, I'm now just going to introduce the woman who's actually doing the heavy lifting tonight and launching this book, and that's Jennifer Livett. Jennifer Livett is a scholar, a novelist, and a visual artist. She taught English at the University of Tasmania for a number of years and her prints have featured in several exhibitions in Hobart. In 2016, Jennifer published Wild Island, a novel set in 19th century Hobart that riffs on both Jane Eyre and Wild Sargasso Sea. Reviewing this accomplished book, Rowan Wilson wrote in The Australian, rarely have I read historical fiction as convincing and authentic as this. It's as close to time travel as you can get. Please welcome Jennifer Livett. Thank you, Michelle, for that 
very generous introduction. <laughs> it's a very great pleasure and privilege to be here this evening to launch this important collection of essays on the fiction of Elizabeth Harrower, an occasion that feels particularly celebratory because we have the author with us and because it's the very first collection devoted to her work, as Robert has said. Harrower's four early novels have been like buried treasure in the Australian literary landscape for 40 years, known to be there, deeply admired by other writers and scholars, but not always easily available. Thanks to text, we now have them all together again, and her last novel, In Certain Circles, and the short stories. Harrower has been known from the very first as a writer of distinguished literary psychological thrillers. But to say only this is to take no account of the layered richness of her work, as the essays here demonstrate. Her fictions are set in a time particularly fascinating to us now, the period of the Second World War and its aftermath, the eruption of revisionary attitudes to colonialism and gender, the creative throes of modernism becoming the postmodern. Harrower records all this in characters and narratives that appear deceptively quiet, but are full of subtle turbulence. The Catherine Wheel is one of Harrower's memorable images of modern selfhood, as Brigitte Olibus discusses in this volume. The burning wheel going nowhere, repeating the same endless circles of passion and addiction, giving the lie to old ideas of historical positivism. Bridget Rooney reads The Watchtower through Marshall McLuhan's account of modernism as the period in which electricity gives rise to media that disrupt traditional hierarchies of place. Rooney examines the electrical interior in Harrow's writing and the connections between the personal and the global. Elizabeth McMahon considers moments of being with particular reference to Harrow's short stories, distinguishing these moments from the epiphanies of high modernism and showing how reality, the surreal and fantasy can join in Harrow's work. The young Australian women in Harrower's novels seem born into a place and time of beauty and promise as infinite as the incandescent stars they gaze at, but they quickly discover their power is still limited, as it was for women in the 19th century, to the choice of a man who will help them towards the expansion of mind and spirit they crave. But like Dorothea Brooke, Isabel Archer, Marianas of the Moated Grange and Ladies of Shalott, their choices lead all too often only to closed rooms, prison towers, new spaces of entrapment. Megan Nash investigates the dark echoes of tyranny between the Watchtower and Daniel Deronda as the characters in both novels traverse what Nash calls the same extreme country of suffering. 
The Sydney and fictional Newcastle setting of all but one of Harrower's novels is memorable and profoundly significant. I first read Down in the City in the 70s in Tasmania when I didn't know Sydney well at all, but I clearly recall the deep impact the novel had on me for its vivid images of Sydney. Fiona McFarlane writes here about the great gift of having one's own city conjured into fictional being, while showing that Harrower also uses the city to illuminate character, opinion, experience, prejudice, and privilege. Elizabeth Webby maps Harrower's changing evocations of Sydney from down in the city, which was written in London, to the last in certain circles. I'm tempted to say there, is it the last? Nothing more hidden away? Robert Dixon examines Harrower's fiction as metageographical, discussing the ways in which her relentlessly ironic perspective illuminates the provinciality of Australian culture in the mid-20th century through an endemic habit of transnational comparison. Harrow's Sydney houses are, as Michelle de Kretzer observes, filled with a striking abundance of objects, seductive things. For de Kretzer, the plethora of marriage gifts, Christmas gifts, ornaments and decorations in the watchtower has a dangerous magic. It exhibits the commodity consciousness of the 1960s and sets up resounding implications of ownership, desire, and possession. De Kretzer examines the tension in the novel between moral disapproval and a rhetoric of fascinated enthrallment. In Harrow's fiction, the beauty and plenty of Sydney make it a post-war paradise, a secular Eden. But like the original, it has hidden traps. Ivor Indyk does not generally, as he says in his essay, go looking for God in Australian fiction. But here he reveals Harrow's keen observation of Protestant masochism and Catholic and Jewish social position in the 50s and 60s. At the same time, Indyk examines the secular godless universe in which the characters appear morally adrift. Kate Livett interprets this godlessness as Nietzschean, the will to power having supplanted moral principle. The ensuing gender battles produce thermodynamic extremes of heat and entropy, the frozen entrapment of the female characters being thus revealed as both domestic and epic. Nicholas Burns and Julian Murford both take Harrower's aggressive young male antagonists as their starting point, but their arguments diverge strikingly. Burns finds patterns among these characters, asking why their moodiness, temperament, instability should seem attractive to certain women. He explores the answer through divisions of social class and the breaking down of gender hierarchies during the emergence of second wave feminism. 
Julian Murphett returns us to the Catherine Wheel, arguing that Harrower's narrative strategies make this book look forward in many ways to the postmodern meta-novel. Christian Rowland is often present to Clem as an image constructed through the new electronics of telephone, tape recorder, radio and television. The old marriage plot is stripped and rejected here, its exhaustion demonstrated not through character, but as Murphy says, characterology, a politics of the self projected on into an electronic future. What shines, I think, through all these essays is the powerful individuality of Harrower's voice the subtlety of her social and psychological perceptions, the strange distinctiveness of each novel and story. I'd like to congratulate Sydney University Press on this great series, Elizabeth McMahon and Brigitte Olivas for their meticulous editing, and all those who've contributed to this volume. And I'd like to express my own and I'm sure everyone's special thanks to Elizabeth Harrower for the fiction that has inspired it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, I would also like to add my thanks, our thanks to, to Elizabeth, um, for the great gift, the continuing gift of, of your writing. Um, it feels like the beginning of an adventure, really, this first book um, on, on your work, and, and we hope there'll be, you know, others. Well, we others. know there are more. We when, know there, are, there is work, more work being done. Plenty of, plenty of work being done, yes, absolutely. So, and, and thank you also for... Um, doing us the honour of coming along this evening to honour the, the labour, the, the intellectual scholarly labour of, of producing the book um, and, and, you know, the, and, and to acknowledge our appreciation of you. So that's, that's a great privilege. Um, and I would join my thanks there too, my thanks to um, Jennifer. Um, it, listening to you speak, Jennifer is such a beautiful writer but such an extraordinary reader um, above all. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to see one's own work, <laughs> part of one's own work, uh, re represented in that, in that uh, very attentive way. And I was struck um, also because we are so privileged here tonight to have so many important and wonderful writers uh, also honouring um, Elizabeth uh, in this way. And it is such a privilege to, to be able to do the work that we do and to do it in the context of being part of a living literary culture. So. Um, I'll just kind of end my thanks there and, and hand over. Oh, no, the third thing I wanted to say was to acknowledge and thank my co-editor, Elizabeth McMahon. We got the band back together to put this book out. Um, it's been a complete treat um, and, and a joy to work with you, so thank you. Yeah, thanks, Regina. Um, just to say on that one, back at you, thank you. Uh, a pleasure to work with you as well. Um, I just wanted to add a couple of more thanks. Uh, one is that, as uh, Robert indicated, this uh, book 
this collection uh, was born at a, a, a symposium at the University of New South Wales. Uh, many people here were there. Uh, the, many of the contributors spoke on that um, occasion and writers spoke of, uh, of write their engagement with Elizabeth's work. So thank you for that opportunity to the University of New South Wales. And we have um, colleagues Bridget Rooney and Fiona Morrison here who are also involved in that day. So thank you to both of you as well. Um, what uh, I'd like to thank also uh, the contributors, of course, um, and who were their wonderful essays. I mean, I am an editor, so I, I have, you know, edit Southerly as well, and I have been editing for a very long time. And I am particularly proud of this collection. It is a really sterling collection and people really rose to the occasion um, of uh, responding to Elizabeth's uh, wonderful work. I'm going to be the pivot point into a second part of this event, which is the readings um, from Elizabeth's work. And I'm going to start with um, the beginning of The Fun of the Fair. And uh, I chose this because I wanted to represent the short stories. I wanted the short stories to be represented. I was just told by Michael, or via, uh, Michael via somebody else, that this story is set for the HSC now, I understand. Uh, good thing too. Uh, um, uh, it struck me so um, immediately that I read this. And I'm reading it also because in correspondence with Elizabeth, um, I've confirmed that it's the first story that she wrote. So I want to say, like, what an entrance into writing. So this is the fun of the fair, the beginning. And then, as if the lightning that ripped the sky apart wasn't enough, the lights around the edge of the swimming pool and even the three big ones sunk into it on cement piles went out. At once the solid blackness rang with shrieks and laughter. Only Janet was struck dumb to find that she had been obliterated. It was like nothing so much as that astronomical darkness into which she had been plunged last year when they took out her tonsils. Up to her chin in water, she gave a little squeak of fear and curled her toes into the sandy floor of the pool, entreating them to hang on so that she wouldn't be washed away to the deep end or out through the pipe that went under the rocks and into the ocean. The Pacific was just over there somewhere, behind her. Where was Uncle Hector? She would call him, except that she wouldn't. So I'm back again, and I'm going to stick with beginnings, um, but leaping across the world, away from the Pacific, um, to this is the beginning of the Catherine Wheel. The wind from Siberia, as announced by the BBC, came down Bayswater Road from the direction of Marble Arch, somewhere in a straight line, beyond which, half a world away, Siberia was taken to be. Searing skin and petrifying metal and wood, it took possession of London and this early day of the new year. Gently, Somehow sympathetically, with a secret sort of throb, my ears ached against it, but rather more drearily and with a sense of injustice, my eyes watered as I narrowed them at the steely dark sky and swirling smoke. The centre of the universe, the brilliance of the winter season. 
It was some time after three o'clock and I was returning home from the shops at Notting Hill Gate. Beside me, traffic trundled endlessly into town, saloons and commercial vans competing under swaying sodium lights soon to be switched on. The air was fumy. Ahead, the footpath stretched empty, but for the two or three muffled shapes that hurried past, bent bleakly as I was on some quick, warm haven. Across the road, the enigmatic facades of a row of semi-public buildings ended where the railings of Kensington Gardens began. Just opposite this corner of the gardens, Miss Evans had her service house, and it was here I had a room with a diagonal view of bare black avenues and paths and empty seats and grass. Reluctantly, I had left my work for a few minutes to get food for the week, but as I jangled the loose change in my purse and fumbled amongst it with gloved and bloodless fingers for the key, I was aware of a profound unwillingness either to go back through these tall glass panelled doors or to remain outside. I'm going to read from um, The Long Prospect, um, a section in which um, Emily, uh, the child protagonist, is following her, her teacher home to discover where she lives. Just for its wonderful um, evocation of a child's imaginative uh, world. Bouncing the soft green ball, Emily turned the corner and saw Miss Bates, about 50 yards ahead, open the gate of an old-fashioned bungalow and go along the path. This was the street where Dottie lived. It was well known to Emily. Even so, having saluted it as the happy dwelling place of Miss Bates, she was at a loss. The end of the journey was not something she had envisaged. Her one intention had been to discover where Miss Bates was. If such a marvelous creature could be, was anywhere, where she, when she was not at school. That had seemed the limit of desirability. Now she could not help but feel that some more positive satisfaction should be wrung from so enterprising a deed. What? She threw the ball past the house and fled after it, terrified. What if she could think of some way to get in? Knock and ask for something. An aunt? A scooter? Miss Bates would come to the door, cry, Emily, my dear, I was lonely. You must come in and have tea with me. An aunt? A scooter? I'll help you find them afterwards. She might even say, I'll be your aunt, my dear. In fact, I am your long-lost aunt. And you may have the scooter I rode when I was your age. No, no, Emily cancelled that. She could not bear to be too optimistic. She stooped over the gutter for her ball and started a slightly more probable conversation. Recklessly, she threw the ball back in the other direction and tore past the house again, glancing at it with such, such alarm that the brief image received by brain and eyes made her heart bang with shock. In a daze, she began to hit the ball, first with one hand, then the other, 
Dazed, she watched it drop and leap, drop and leap. This is from In Certain Circles. Uh, Zoe has been brought up in Sydney, uh, has been away in Europe. Uh, she's now 25 years old and she's just returned to Sydney. In Roman history, Zoe had been amused not by the antics of the infamous Claudius, but by the description of him as a gay young liver and a debauchee. She had wondered how gay and debauched one might have to be to qualify for such titles. Now, when she could have expected to have a clearer opinion about such matters, she believed that there were as many aspects to vice as there were stars in the sky, and that quantities of them had nothing to do with sex. A lack of mutuality, absence of tender feeling were obscene, but nothing else. In every state of life, these lacks and disparities seemed the evils from which most sadness stemmed. And yet, in spite of having learned as much as this, Zoe seemed to herself still to be waiting for the real beginning of her life. She had failed at nothing. It's a shame that our reader of The Watchtower couldn't make it, but obviously he's been caught up with something. So that ends the formal part of the evening. One thing that I would like to do is present Elizabeth with a couple of copies of the book so that she can have arguments about whether or not we got it right or got it wrong, which would be lovely, and then invite you to stay with us and have a chat and a nibble and a drink and talk about writing and reading some more. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.